Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. The title I've finally given what I'm talking about today is called Discovering We. Ibn Arabi's explanation of whoever knows their self knows their Lord in chapter 177 of the Futuhat, the Meccan Illuminations. Because I'm ending up talking about a whole chapter that would take a book to translate and comment and all, I wanted to uh, adapt this morning's theme of my end is my beginning and my beginning is my end. So I'm going to summarize, try and give you some images at the very beginning that really go to the essence of what I'm going to be talking about. So that way, if you find what I'm saying boring or inconclusive or just puzzling or, or too recondite, you can go back to these images at the beginning. So what I'd like to begin with, and that's the discovering we question, is because I think it does sum up what this chapter and what Ibn Arabi's whole conception of self-knowing and marifa is about, is to begin with a recurrent moment in every love story that, uh, ah, Michael, you appeared out of nowhere back there. <laughs> but, uh, well, I've got my old family here. It's, it's a little, now I'm going to be nervous. <laughs> so, uh, a stranger who doesn't know Ibn Arabi. So, uh, anyway, to come back to this love story, it's really something that we've all experienced and continue to experience in life. And the key here, I think, to Ibn Arabi's notion of what distinguishes it from ilm, from sort of abstract conceptual knowledge, really is love, despite the apparent ontological focus when we try and translate marifa into English. Because there is no marifa, there is no self-knowing, no awareness without love, unlike the case with ilm and the intellect and fikr and thought. So what I'm pointing to here when I said discovering we is that point we've all experienced, that point at which we discover that the love one had long felt for someone else was not only reciprocated, but was actually the reflection or the product or the reality of that same deeper love on the other part. In the Quranic or in the terms of the tradition here in the Hadith Qudsi, uh, one expression of that is the famous Hadith, I, when God speaking, I was a hidden treasure and I love to be known. So everything flows from that love. So when we're talking about marifa, it's all about both the so I created both the creatures and human beings in particular, the subjects and objects of knowing of the divine names so that I might be known. Or in an equally classic uh, verse in the Quran, you have in speaking of the awliyaullah, those who've realized this true knowing and true proximity to God, you have what is always taken as the very telling expression, yuhibbuhum wahibunahu. He loves them, and so, and therefore, they love him. So I hope that the, uh, that, that reality of love, that everyone, if you just go back in your own experience of love with whoever, whatever, at any point in your life, you'll be able to recognize that metaphysical shift that takes place that corresponds to that realization. Uh, at other times we've talked in the Quran and in Hafez in particular, also sometimes in Rumi, you have this wonderful language which mirrors all these different shifts of perspective as we become aware of that one all-encompassing love story that we all are. So, begin with, though, we imagine that there is an I that loves you, or you, with a capital U. But the reality, as Ibn Arabi always reminds us, is only we. As he points out elsewhere, this is a ridiculous situation. It's as though we're like someone who's sitting in a garden all our life, but we don't realize that we're in a garden. We don't realize until we die, that is, we die to the ego and wake up. Uh, just again, I can't, uh, can't talk about these things without thinking how wonderfully the poets put it. This does remind me of a famous line, which I know, I'm sure you all have, have seen from Hafez. Salaha del talab e jam e jam mikard. 
وانچه خود داشت گم شدگان لب دریا می کرد for years the heart was seeking the jama jam the, the world seeing cup the cup in which the whole world is reflected the heart the soul that we'll be talking about here and that which it itself had it was seeking from the lost ones along the sea of the shore of love so anyway so much for so much for yeah, see i can't It's deadly starting with these poets. You start to never get into the nitty-gritty of Ibn Arabi's thought. But anyway, stay with them if you find this boring, or go back there if you find this boring. Also, uh, something that I can also say that's, that's very uh, relevant here is I always love coming out here because Ibn Arabi always takes us to some place that, again, sums up in an image everything that the talk is going to be about, whosoever knows their self. And as you'll see when we get into his description of what Ma'arif and Arif and Nafsu Hufkar Arif Arabu, what whoever knows their self knows their Lord. The real key to that kind of knowing, he always says, is real humility, absolute humility and needfulness. And that is uh, something without which none of this knowing is possible. And we were fortunate the day before the conference to go out and visit uh, uh, Muir Woods, which, again, uh, wherever we go, we seem to go to the holiest place, sacred place we can find in that place, be it Chart or for Paris or whatever. And, and uh, for me, Muir Woods is the Masjid al-Masajid of, of uh, San Francisco, the most, <laughs> the most sacred place of worship that nearby, anyway, <laughs> that, that I found that just seems to be just immediately attract us there uh, whenever we come because you find yourself there in that situation, which is such an image of the absolute human situation, of that natural humility, that natural smallness, and just being at one with the worship that just wells up within you uh, without anybody having to do anything in that particular place. So that, so much for uh, some images that you can come back to if the wordiness gets to you at some point or another here. Now, the ongoing aim and presumption of, of these talks that I've given, I was first invited here in, eight, in 1990, has been to bring you some what Abu Madian called, well, he said fresh meat, but there might be vegetarians in the group. So I'll, I'll call it fresh food. <laughs> so no, nobody is on step on anybody's toes here. But to bring you something from the Futuhat that unless you can study it in the Arabic, you wouldn't be able to have otherwise. And I've always usually managed to do that using Osman Yahya's edition going through the indexes on the topic, on a theme related to what we're invited to speak about. But, um, and here's a, there's a whole story with this whole paradox right here, is you may or may not know, but those of you who know Arabic probably do, that, that they've come up with this wonderful Ibn Arabi website, the Thesaurus Islamicus people, which has the whole Bulak edition in computer searchable form and the whole Konyui, the whole Konya edition, uh, manuscript, and then uh, Arabic uh, copies uh, of all the manuscripts. So you can absolutely search the whole Fudu'ad immediately, just type in a few Arabic words, and find whatever theme you wanted to find. So, well, no longer I have to stick with it, with the Osman Yahya, which we know is very unreliable as indexes and all, because they're done the old way by, by hand. So I thought, this is wonderful. I will look up Man the theme here, whoever, whosoever knows their self, find out all the passages, and I can do that. You know, Corey, you know, I'm busy. You know, I'll, I'll be able to do that in one weekend. You know, write this paper. You know. Well, you know, uh, again, inshallah. <laughs> um, so it didn't work out that way because I found more than 70 explicit mentions that it was always in the same form in the Quran, in the Futuhat, but they were deadly boring. They were ontologically real, but it was never the subject of what he was talking about. It was just like, oh, by the way, whoever knows himself knows their Lord, and, and you know what that means, and so forth. Until I got to this chapter, thank goodness, uh, which, but it was a whole chapter. I couldn't just kind of take you along in that journey. 
but it's a chapter that certainly is a journey in itself. So, in fact, um, what it reminds us of is that this word, and I have to explain a little Arabic here, but whoever knows, the word know here, arafa, is how you know another person. It's connaissance, not savoir in French. So it's absolutely that kind of intimate, personal knowing and intimacy. Is Olga here today? or she? No, she's not too bad, because I loved her when she talked about intimacy is the key in her talk at the beginning of the program yesterday. So arafa is that way. Marifa, the abstract form of that, or the nominal sort of verbal noun form of that, likewise, appears in almost every chapter of the Futuat. So it sort of reminds us that this is a book of Marifa in the same way that, I don't know if everybody realizes this, but there's a very famous book in Islamic tradition called Ihya Alumadin, to bring alive the religion, the Sciences, the sort of religious sciences by a man named Ghazali. It's like the sort of uh, classic genre of that work, sort of how the study of the Quran and Hadith will lead you through the sciences to to the beginning of the spiritual path. But it always just leaves you kind of panning to get going there. And, and then Ibn Arabi's book is like the uh, volume two. It's like where you go. So you go from those ulum into the ma'arif, into that intimate personal knowing and awareness of God. So if we look at the structures in detail of the Futuhat, you'll see how it's always and constantly echoing Ghazali's uh, famous and also massive book of the Ulumadin. So one of the things I can say, a few things about what I discovered about how Ibn Arabi uses this expression, this famous hadith, Mar'araf Anafsa, who, whoever knows their self knows their Lord, which are, are, I think, still relevant before we get into this chapter 177. The first one is he never cites it as the Arabic, Mar'araf Anafsa, Faqad Arafa. Now, that, that, forget the Arabic, just if you knew it, it's important. The important thing is a lot of people who cite the hadith cite it in such a form that it says whoever knows their self has always and already known their Lord. And that is not a form that Ibn Arabi is particularly in favor of, because for him, we're always coming to know. It's not something that's over. It's not sort of like, uh, say, the Gnostic vision, you die, and then all the illusions of the world go away, and you're immediately at one with your source. This has nothing to do with Ibn Arabi and something that he carefully avoids, and he is using this hadith. Second point is he always attributes this hadith very specifically and explicitly to the prophet. And again, you won't find it in any of the canonical books, Sunni or Shia or whatever, of hadith. So the fact, it's, it's kind of important to point out that it is a hadith, it's a prophetic hadith, and um, <clears throat> that. And then mm, the next thing is that whenever he mentions it, he also mentions several key Quranic passages that I'm going to come to in just a moment, which for him, the prophet is summing up in that simple and very memorable formula. And finally, I just point out that the word nafs, as he uses it here, is the whole spiritual reality of insan, that is the logos, that is all that all that is knowably real to human beings. Uh, and, and its inner reflection is the qalb, or dil, the heart, not the basharic. Uh, the reason I mention this is because if you heard that word nafs, and you've read a lot of Sufi literature, especially in the Persianate traditions of South Asia or Turkey or so forth, those writers often use nafs to refer to the what the Quran says, nafs amara, the kind of bodily, carnal ego self, and that and and actually they'll interpret that hadith in terms of whoever sort of knows that and knows that we're not that that we have this relation to God. I mean that's a very in that tradition, nafs is often used in that way, and the hadith is understood that way. Ibn Arabi never does that. For him, nafs is this much higher and all-inclusive reality of the heart or of the whole soul in all its dimensions. And also, it's quite different from what our friend uh, Samer talked about, uh, quite different from the embodied soul in terms of, as it was understood by the philosophers in, in and before the Islamic tradition, so that... Uh, 
again, the uh, the other thing, of course, is nafs here always has the sense of, of really, as the nafesh in the Hebrew, nafs, nafas here, that it has the sense of the divine breath of the ruh, which is the very essence of the of the heart. So now I wanted to mention, just so, again, to fill in the background here uh, for you, uh, these three Quranic verses, which the, which whenever Ibn Arabi brings up this thing, there's some 70 times this particular hadith, he always mentions them. The first one, and they're very simple, but the first one is, and in your own souls, so why don't you look into your own souls, into your own selves? Uh, the key word there, and it's a key to understanding the way he interprets this, absara, means to see through. It has to do with spiritual vision, not with our physical vision, but it has to do with seeing and seeing through. So the whole process of marifa, which is so important that it's a process, a sort of an initial impression and then a sort of deeper and deeper penetration. Um, he loves that Quranic verse, why do you not look deeply and perceive what's going on in your own souls? Now, interestingly enough, that's verse uh, 51, 21. The verse right before it says, and in the earth are signs for those who know with total certainty. But the Mukanin, like the Awliya, are a very, very high state indeed. So he really focuses much more on looking within the soul rather than looking out at the earth. The other verse that uh, we've talked about in other contexts and is uh, one that everybody in this setting probably knows, but we shall continue to cause them to see our signs, on the horizons and in their own souls until or so that it becomes clear to him that he is the truly real. Who here, the divine breath, is the truly real. And finally, although he doesn't mention it explicitly, whenever you get these two things about absara, looking deeply and perceiving, and the soul, you can't help but think, if you know your Quran, about verse 56, 85, which describes the reality of the situation of a person's ozon, the point of death, which for Ibn Arabi, death always means spiritual birth. And there, the, the God says, and we are closer to him than all of you, and yet you do not look deeply and perceive. So, um, in, in, so, so all of those hadith are there and sort of informing Ibn Arabi's understanding. I mean, all those verses are there informing his understanding of this famous hadith. And finally, there's one hadith which I need to mention again in detail for those of you who aren't familiar with it, that he always alludes to and sort of seizes the very essence of this process of self-knowing. And that is, and I'll quote the whole thing here because every word is important, the messenger of God said that God said, though it's a hadith qutsi, a divine saying, whoever poses a close friend, a wali of mine, I declare war on them. And my servant does not come nearer to me with anything more lovable, it's that word, intense love, a habbu to me, than what I have made a duty for him. And my servant continues to come clear, nearer to me through the further acts of devotion, the nuafa, we'll come back to this, until I love him. Then when I love him, I am his hearing with which he hears, his sight with which he sees, his hand with which he holds, and his foot with which he walks. And if he asks me, I surely give to him, and if he seeks my help, I surely help him. So this progression through the initial acts of devotion on to the ongoing process of deepening the cycle of sort of deepening our awareness of God and what it requires of us until our will becomes united, taslim or Islam, that surrender of our will to the divine will. That is the process of marifa, the process of self-knowing that Ibn Harbi is talking about. But he comes back to this hadith because that isn't something that happens automatically. We have experiences of it from time to time. What he loves in the hadith is its 
emphasis on what we have to do in order to make that a maqam, a, a accomplished reality. So the three keys to this chapter on the, the maqam of, of Marifa are uh, explained in that hadith. That is, our recognizing the wali and walaya, recognizing God's closeness and what that means to us, of divine love as the motor and the context and the final end of this process, that is, in practical terms, uh, looking at the moments of grace when we become aware of that love. And finally, our awakened identity to the divine we, or that sort of, or, you know, this wonderful pun, the ayn of all that, the essence and the eye that knows all of that, that, that in fact is the divine love that makes this possible. So, again, I'll have to sort of, uh, now we're going to plunge into the chapter. So, if, again, if you get lost, just go back and reflect on that wonderful hadith. Mm. So Ibn Arabi begins this chapter, as he does all the ones in the Fudrat, with a poem. And it's a, they're always very dense poems, and the whole the poem sets a dialogue with the rest of the of the of the story. You might say it's like um well it, it it's it's just like I I have to kind of compress the reading process very differently when I'm presenting it to you in a lecture. So I'm gonna give the poem and say a few things about it. So again, not because because you really can't have the time to re- read this chapter and come back to it. So let me just read the ch- poem through, and then I'll talk a little bit about how the chapter relates to it. Whoever climbs the ascending stairways of Marifa of self-knowledge sees the one who is in his self from his attribute and quality. It's kind of capital one or capital W of who. Because that attribute, that quality, points to one because of the difference between Elm and Marifa. So our knowledge scatters us out in the world. We're, we're scattered and drawn into our knowledge. It may unify us in a particular element of attention, but Marifa, our self-knowledge, isn't like that. It always takes us back to God, to the one, to the source. So it, the self or the soul, it's in the feminine, has being in the being of the one whom the real has sent. And in what he has enjoined upon him, he, God has enjoined upon him. So the one whom the real ascent is Adam. It's all the prophets. It's each of us as logos. So our, our soul, its ultimate being, is one and identified with the logos. And in what God has enjoined upon each Adam, his kalafahu, gave him his taklif. For if we do that taklif, if we carry out that injunction, then he is the imam, he, the one, is the imam of the instant, imam al-waqt, in his every state. And the bystander, the person sort of stands still on the path, intensely desires to know him. So again, there's a, again, like any poem, it completely disintegrates when you try and translate or interpret it. My apologies, but I'm not the first one to have noticed that. But the, um, the, the interplay here is, is the essential interplay, again, is between the fact that those little moments of sort of divine love, divine grace and all that awaken us to God's presence and awaken our love, that we're supposed to take every one of those as a signpost, as something that's leading us up a deeper and deeper ladder of understanding, something that I don't care what spiritual tradition you're versed in in the world, this theme of a spiritual ladder is absolutely central, Christian, Jewish, Muslim, Buddhist, Taoist, you name it. <laughs> Ladders are, are a big story here, and so the ladder here is is a very important image. And actually, to, to jump ahead, he gives you seven kinds or sort of seven dimensions of modifier, self-knowing in this chapter. And I am going to jump ahead 
like Yates, to the foot of the ladder, to that foul rag and bone shop of the heart, and the last of the seven sections where he really talks about things that we can also all relate to. And if I have time, I'll come back and sort of take you briefly through the other six, because the other six have to do with all of creation and manifestation and huge metaphysical topics. But what I love, and what's so typical about Ibn Arabi, so you take this latter image seriously, he does give us, in this section I'm going to largely translate for you, how we all are involved and all engaged in that process uh, in our ethical life, primarily, even we're not aware of it. But um, let me first of all give you a little bit of his introduction to this, this description of these different uh, dimensions of Madhafa. First of all, he contrasts Madhafa and knowledge, and he says that Madhafa is unique in its place and seeks nothing but the one. So Madhafa, according to the folk, the calm, and this is the ensemble, the pleroma of all the friends of God, Madhafa is a pathway, a journey, a pilgrimage, a process, a mahajja, for it is only acquired through right action, God consciousness or awareness of God, taqwa, and practical spiritual journeying, saluk, because it is through verified and experientially realized spiritual unveiling, kashfumrakak, never subject to gout, unlike knowledge or external knowledge, conceptual knowledge, which is acquired through intellectual reflection. And so then he he talks, and I'm summarizing here, that the way we really can get to that kind of marafe is by putting into practice the divinely established spiritual laws, the sharia, plural of sharia. But it's very interesting that Ibn Arabi uses the term in its plural here throughout this chapter. And as you read through it, you'll understand, well, he's not talking about... um, oh, you know, well, I guess you've got to follow the Islamic way or the Christian way or the Buddhist way or the Zoroastrian way, and each of these is a plurality of ways. In fact, what he's talking about is one of the gifts and one of the essential presuppositions that are in, in practice of the spiritual path is as soon as you have the slightest taste of what he calls kashmahakak, of a, of a realized realization of a disclosure, you immediately recognize that truth in all of its human expressions. I, I learned this a long time ago in using films in my religious studies classes, and I, I said, well, I, I'm going to illustrate uh, a Christian text or a Muslim text by using a film. But the astonishing thing was, if the people got the film, they got much more, they could get their class in Buddhism and their class in Judaism, they didn't have to just rely on my class, because not that they got the film, but they got something in their own experience. So that's why he's using the plural here, is not talking about a melange or a mix or what's the right dose of this tradition, that tradition, but because you realize when you actually are following this path, you actually realize that all of the sharia, but not as an intellectual construct, you realize in practice, when you know the end of the path, then you know what all the prophets were actually pointing to. And you know that stage by stage by your own kashmahakit, by your own unveiling of the inner truth and meaning of that particular prescription. So to go on now and quote him, and I'll sort of put my fingers up here, most of what I'll be saying from now on is a quote. So if a person wants to truly know things as they really are, they can't do so with what they are given by simply by their faculties of sense and thinking, their natural intellectual faculties. Instead, they need to expand, wasa, they have to open up by increasing their acts of willing obedience, of ta'at, until the real becomes their hearing and their seeing and all of their powers. He's referring here to that hadith I just read for you. Then they truly know all things, kulilamur, through God, billah, and they know God through God. So get to work, <laughs> following what God ordered you to do, including the acts of willingly obeying him, of paying close attention to your heart, not the nafs, regarding the haya, 
uh, I'll come back to what that word is, that occurs in your heart from God. Observing his limits, staying alone with him and preferring his side until the real becomes all of your powers and you are following clear insight, spiritual insight, Basira, in regard to your situation. Now, the key term there on a practical basis is this funny term, haya, which is actually there's a famous hadith that says, haya, this, this uh, shame or reverence is part of iman. And it's going to relate to the sections I'm reading you from sort of the base of the ladder in this chapter because that... Um, Awareness that we've done wrong, that sort of comes to us spontaneously and we've done something wrong without the police or our parents or anybody getting on to us, that's what haya is. So you don't have one word in this tradition for conscience, but it's haya might be, say, is the fruits of conscience. It's the, the fruits of true conscience. Again, not the socially conditioned one, but that ab- absolutely spontaneous, immediate awareness that we've defied and, and we've broken a divine law, one of these sharia and so forth. Uh, and that's something that all of us, again, have experience of, or certainly if you've had children, you know how powerfully that kind of haya is in somebody at a very early age. For surely this pathway, which I have encouraged you to follow, is a strange pathway indeed, tariq ajiba. And the messenger of God said that there was no, there is no way to come to truly know God except by truly know the self, when he said, whoever knows their self knows their Lord. Then he moves on to these famous verses about the divine signs on the horizons and within ourselves. But Ibn Arabi does only to point out that, but everything already is in ourselves. So if we examine and reflect upon what is in ourselves, we will realize from our knowledge of the self what is acquired by the person who reflects upon the horizons. Therefore, the prophet, since he knew that the self encompasses all the realities of the world, concentrated you on that self-knowing out of his eager desire for that. Uh, that's haris and alaikum. It's like he loved us so much. He said, don't waste your time there. You know, focus on the essential. So Ibn Harbi goes on to show how that, how that self-knowing is not subject to the same doubts and uncertainties as our knowledge that we acquire of the world from reflection. So this, he says, this path of knowing oneself is the path of salvation, Najat. Now, he's going on to describe the seven types of knowing that are included in this, and he says, so when we look at Marifa in this path of ours, which is the path which has been traveled by the elite among the true servants of God, Al-Khasa, we have found it to include the knowing of seven things. First, of the ultimate realities, Al-Hakaik, which is knowing the divine names. And by the way, most of these you reckon, if you've read anything of Ibn Arabi, you'll see that he doesn't, doesn't write about much but these seven things. Second, knowing through, and that's not knowing ah, but knowing through the theophany or self-manifestation of the real, tajali al-haq, through all things. Third, knowing through the reals addressing his servants who are responsible, that is, human beings and jinn, through the tongues of the prescribed uh, pathways, al-sinata sharaya. And he's, again, as I said, he stresses this plural of these divine pathways uh, so that all, he makes it clear that all human beings are included in his perspective here. And fourth, through knowing the perfection and imperfection of being, uh, to paraphrase this in English, he's really saying how the perfection of being necessarily includes all the manifest imperfections. Fifth, the human beings knowing of his or herself by means of the ultimate realities. Uh, sixth, knowing the divine imag- imagining, the khayal, and its world, both universal and separate or individual. And seventh, knowing the remedies and illnesses of the self. Uh, and that's the one we're going to talk about today. But um, 
first of all, I, I'd have to mention that some of these, as you can see, knowing the divine names or knowing all the tajaliyat, the self-manifestations, or knowing the realms of imagination, which for Ibn Arabi is everything other than God, other than sort of the divine essence. Uh, you can imagine that the, familiar, the, that the paradox of even trying to talk about those. In fact, if I were to translate all of this, uh, it's, it's funny because he's using all this intellectual language to talk us out something which is ultimately necessarily, and he insists on that too, experiential. So uh, there's some real paradoxes in that those sections which I'm avoiding by leaping to the end of the or the beginning of the letter. But uh, here today I want to start with what is most familiar and note again the constant inter- implicit interplay in this chapter, which is even more so than many in the Futat, between what is stated and what each of us as readers or reflectors in that chapter must supply from our own reflection experience. Uh, okay, so skip over it. I hope we have time to come back to those. I've got some nice quotes from each one, but to go on to uh, the seventh one. And they're all tied together, and that's that's important too. But to come back again to the eighth and beginning here, the, it's, the seventh is the, he says, the seventh kind of true self or God-knowing is the knowing of spiritual illnesses and their remedies. And this is, most of this is quoted, I'll say when it's not. This is needed by whoever is actually guiding someone among the sheikhs. Now, the term is manurabi, and rab tarbiya is actually not formal teaching, like a sheikh who's like instructing people. Rabia is a term of how parents raise their children. So it's that kind of sheikh or person who's responsible for spiritual guidance of people. And since we have psychologists in the crowd and... Uh, parents and uh, maybe good bosses and and the crowd are good supervisors. Uh, He's not just talking about shayuch in traditional uh, spiritual settings, but he's talking about things that we can all apply as parents, as teachers, as psychologists, uh, teachers, and and certainly in these things where we actually are, whether we like it or not, formally involved in spiritually guiding people. So this is needed by whoever is actually guiding among the sheikhs, and these remedies are only useful in those who actually accept to use them. For they, how many doctors do we have out here in the crowd? I'm just wondering, because apparently this is a problem in bodily medicine as well, that doctors prescribe medicines and people don't take them. Um, I, I know my mother does a lot of that. <laughs> and it's not that she forgets. <laughs> but uh, certainly spiritual doctors know very well what he's talking about here. So he says, for these remedies will have no effect where the sick person actually fails to use them. So we shall explain these illnesses, God willing, by means of summarizing their essential points. And then we shall mention the specific remedies for each of these illnesses in the path. And there's no place here for discussing diseases of anything but souls in particular, not at all for intellects and bodies. But if you know Ibn Arabi, he can't say, if he's going to say not something, he has to explain it, you know. <laughs> so since I'm in the bastion of the intellect here and, and spend my life in them, I, I can't help but quote what he says about the remedies for intellects. So the, the remedies for the illnesses of intellects are taking retreats, chalawat, to restore the natural balance of the Constitution, avoiding thinking throughout those retreats, and the long, continuous practice of dhikr, of remembrance of God. Nothing more than that. So uh, anyway, even for psychologists, they may have patients uh, from universities who could follow some of that advice. So uh, now he goes on and he divides the kind of illnesses and remedies into three kinds. Speeches in ones in aqwal, af'al, and ahwal. Speeches in uh, uh, illnesses that are manifest in speech, in actions, or in states. Now you wonder why you give this order, but uh, somebody, we were having a discussion out there, it was yesterday, they had a beautiful saying. They said, well, you know, I think, I'm, I'm not, I'm sorry, but 
I don't know, know whether they're even here today, but they said, you know, what about that 95% of the wrong stuff that nobody else knows about that we do, you know? I, I think the more you pay attention, the more it goes up into the infinitesimal fractions of 99.999, or whatever, if you really do, maraqaba, you know, following your, your nafs. But um, so what the Sufis often use this formula, and the reason they, they work, and reason he focuses here on aqual of the of the illnesses manifest in speech is because those are often the most um, they they manifest things that aren't obviously called sins or aren't going to get bad public reactions it's the most subtle the things in this are generally the most subtle kinds of imbalances of psyche imbalances or psyche imperfections it's the that 95 or 99 percent of stuff that isn't otherwise evident but that does come out and reveal itself in our speech. And again, what immediately comes to my mind is uh, an experience I've often had, and I imagine a lot of you have had. Um, how many people here have had that experience? Like you're, you're, you're going to go see somebody who's a, a great sheikh or teacher, and you're like, your mind is full of what I'm going to say and what should I say and what should I be and how should I be and everything. And you walk into the presence of that person, and like it's just like it's all a blank, you know? And then you walk out a couple hours later and say, where was I? <laughs> you know, I mean, what was going on? You know, that, that chatterbox mind, uh, that all of that talk in our head, hadith and nafs, that talking of this, of the chattering of the soul, all that kind of disappears in the presence of reality. So uh, all of this is relevant uh, to these different uh, stories about illnesses of, uh, manifest in speech. So the first, among these diseases of speech is inappropriate persistence in saying what is true. And this is one of the greatest spiritual diseases. Now, now inappropriate. I, I added the word inappropriate because he's iltizam, but, but that's what he's talking about. Uh, and again, this is one of the greatest spiritual diseases. Its remedy is the true awareness of the spiritually appropriate situations in which it is necessary to avoid that. Now, actually, this word mawatan is what each of these things is about. And it really means a mountain is like the homeland. Uh, watan is like the la patrie, the, the, the fatherland. So he uses it throughout his books for spiritual, essential spiritual places, if you will. But it's, it's, it's what's appropriate at a particular time and place. How do we know that? I mean, this is something that, I mean, I... I'm a teacher married to a psychologist, so I know that both of us in our work, the very essence of the work has to do with accumulated experience and accumulated deepening of what are the muatan, you know, of how you handle, how you approach each student, each patient, each client in a different way. I mean, and, and um, I've also known salespeople. Are any salespeople in the crowd, you know? A few of them, you know. I mean, a good salesperson, they have a ma'rifatul mu'atan, you know. They can walk in a room and in 10 seconds without you noticing it, they can sell you something, you know, whatever they've got to sell, you know. And most salespeople who are really good at that can sell absolutely anything, you know. I mean, if they're really good, they become politicians, I guess. You know? but, but I mean, but uh, in any case, um, it just occurs to me that, that we have to understand what, what he's talking about there, that this is a kind of inspired knowledge which we can acquire and deepen, but it's an affinity. It's not something you can teach people. 
if people have a natural aptitude for that or they don't, you can learn about it and you can learn from experience, but everybody starts at very different kinds of levels with regard to this marifa, this awareness of their self that he's talking about. So why does he say that just insisting on telling the truth isn't always appropriate, he says, because uh, gossip and backbiting, raiba, is true, yet it is forbidden. And here, there, there, I didn't have time, it take a lot of time to give you all the passages from the Quran. Almost everything that he's going to talk about here are what in Islam is called adab, proper behavior. And a lot of times people just say, oh, well, that's like, you know, that's, that's easy. Adab is what the culture teaches you, whatever. What he's trying to do is to take you back and show you that in the Quran, when these things are brought up, they really do have a very deep and challenging spiritual meaning. There's some chairs, places up here. I don't know if they're any closer back there, but you're welcome to come up and join us up here. Okay. So, I mean, for one, for one, for one place in the Quran, the Bible is said to be like eating your dead brother's fle- own flesh, you know, eat, cannibalizing your own brother when you say something that's true about them but that hurts their feelings and, 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 and harms them. And he says, and slander and calumny are also true, but they're also forbidden. He goes on with a long list of these kinds of truths that are forbidden, religiously forbidden. Indeed, this sort of speaking is among the mortal sins, al-kabair, the, the immense sins, the immortal sins. And giving criticism, uh, nasiha, now this word constructive criticism, it's nasiha min aleman. And the prophet actually appeared to Ibn Arabi, I, I think I put that in the newsletter one year, and, and said, you know, give nasiha, you know, take this seriously. And this Ibn Arabi went off, and he, like all Sufis, he avoided powerful people. Well, after he got the stream of the prophet, he went and he spent his life, you know, hanging out with kings and rulers and powerful ulama and all, and privately advising and counseling them. So he takes Nosia seriously, and he says, this is constructive criticism. Um, but he says, giving constructive criticism is true also. In public, it is true. And yet, in, to do it so in public is a terrible shame, and is only done by the totally ignorant, al-jahilun al-mutlaq, or those with ulterior worldly motives. For the, I guess, bloggers he's alluding to here, for 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 the intended, for the intended outcome of true nasiha is acquiring a solid benefit, a spiritual fida, and confirming loving friendship. So if you think of nasiha that that and, and just think of your own people, you know, close to you that. You know, if it works, you do have wad, this wonderful word, wadud comes in, you know, wad, you, the, the, the fruit of real constructive criticism, the way it works with people, is that it deepens their love and their appreciation of your friendship and your closeness or your parenthood or whatever it might be. But we also know that that isn't always the consequence if we don't get the right mountain, the right way to go about doing so. Now, Ibn Arabi continues that doing so in public rather than at the right private moment and circumstances has a long list of totally opposite consequences, all of which are spiritually harmful, both for the person who does it and the person to whom it's done. Uh, we won't go into those, but you, you can fill in the blanks. Everybody knows about this from experience. For if the person who's tempted to criticize someone else openly were to busy himself with examining his or her own faults, that would distract them from being concerned with the shortcomings of others, a theme that he comes back to again and again. So that's the first one. Now, as for the person, number two, as for the person who is constantly following the actions of his or her neighbor in order to take note of everything that they are doing, well, that also is among the most severe of illnesses of the soul, for it is occupying yourself while it is not of your business while being heedless about your own self. And this is, go watch Desperate Housewives if you want to see what he's, what he's talking about here. <laughs> okay. Because the carnal self unconsciously stores up those records of the other person's words and actions during the time that those two people are friendly and together until another day. 
since the friendship between them veils them from being aware of that. And then later on, as he explains, in different circumstances, like divorce, all that is unloaded and abused for the worst possible ends. Now, again, you can fill in your own examples. Third, among the illnesses of words or speech is inquiring about other people's circumstances and what they're doing, uh, being fuzuli, fudul, too nosy, busybody. And its remedy is taking one's example from the messenger of God. And he goes on in great detail about how he'd never inquired about where his own family had been, his wives, their comings and goings, and so forth. And he's always maintaining the veil, the divine name, asatar, over things that he knew, because what he's saying is that the prophet knew everybody intimately, their soul, what they were up to and everything, and yet he never revealed. He went out of his way not to reveal any of that marifa that he had of their true states. For he knew that everyone has their shortcomings and also that not everything that a human being does should be known by everyone, even if it is good. And uh, by the way, this is an allusion to something that's very central in the Quran that you should always do good for people in secret, never, never publicly or openly. In conclusion, in Judaism, has some other traditions as well, but it's, it's particularly strict in the Quran. In conclusion, this sort of thing rarely comes from anyone but those who are of a rotten character, without any true awareness of religion, of deen, and deeply evil. I love his formula here. Khabith al-Batin, la deen lahu, saya al-sarira. You can't get any worse than that. <laughs> so uh, stay out of other people's business. And as the Prophet said, whoever, as is quote a hadith, whoever wants to beautify or improve the religious practices of another person, Tahsin al-Islamim, leaves him alone as far as everything that does not concern him personally. That is, there are several pronouns here, but in other words, if you want somebody else's awareness of God to improve, then don't try and improve or better or change them except insofar as it has to do and concerns you personally. And now, each of these gets a little more subtle. So now, fourthly, among the diseases of the soul and speech is trying to put others under obligation and continually talking about whatever good you have bestowed on someone. For such inappropriate, again, I have to add, largesse is an offense. And the remedy for that is when that giving up ends up tormenting or afflicting or harming the giver and depriving the giver of their expected reward. Now, does anybody need um, any examples of this one? Um, my uh, former father-in-law was an estate attorney, a, ta- a tax attorney. So, like, I mean, there wasn't a day that he didn't come home, right, Michael, <laughs> and talk about all the horrible things that people do in fighting over inheritances. So, you know, I remember my mom at that time saying, oh, my God, you know, I, I want to die penniless, you know, <laughs> so my kids won't do all this, this unbelievable, horrible stuff. And it's still true. I mean, I just... It's just like one of the rules of human nature is like if you're going to leave an estate, people will do. What was it in the paper this weekend about the Astors? And the, there was a whole headline front page of the New York Times about this kind of thing. So again, um, and, and I suspect that a lot of parents sometimes feel, you know, at first you feel like you have ungrateful kids, you know. But in fact, we may have violated this particular spiritual principle because he's going to explain what the opposite of this kind of giving, you know, giving when you expect something isn't giving at all. And in fact, so what harm is greater than this inappropriate largesse since it is a harm to the soul? And its remedy is that you should only consider passing along to someone else something that is in your possession when that actually belongs to the person you're giving to in God's knowing, that is, God's knowing of the appropriate action. For that is good, 
And those possessions are only entrusted to you in any case. They're only an amana, but just as long as you don't know who they really belong to. Uh, and this, again, brings back this image of using class of God in the subways. If you're, if you're in a um, situation, you ever been in a place where everybody's begging? I, I won't mention countries by name because they, they clean it up after a while and make a country where I lived. But you, you have to, you know, it's a wonderful spiritual test. An illustration of this is you've got so much money and you're surrounded by begging children and you're going down the street in the street and there are people there and there's just like one form of misshapen, you know. I mean, I've lived in countries where people would break their kids' legs and contort them in strange positions so they would be better beggars and better money earners and so forth. So if you're in that kind of situation, now that's just the outward image of what he's talking about, but it's someplace where if you've ever been there, you, you won't forget it because your money's gone in an instant, no matter how many people you get it to. So you kind of have to, what principle am I going to go as to where, you know, I want to give. I don't want to be Mr. Stingy, Western, you know, gringo, heathen, you know, heal, you know. So what can I do to kind of overcome this kind of gap? And and it's something that really, I remember, certainly has eaten away at me every time I found myself in that kind of situation. So what he's talking about, he says, so if God lets you know who it is that you should be giving that to, that is good, and those possessions are only entrusted to you, only as long as you don't know who they really belong to. So whenever you pass them along by freely giving them, and he uses different words, freely giving as opposed to inappropriately giving, ta, to whoever God has determined that they rightly belong to in that particular moment, then at that moment you already know who is the rightful owner of that trust, and you give thanks to God for passing that along. Now, and actually let me stop here because and point something out that I've tried to point out as we go along, is that our awareness of ourself and our soul here, that in each of these instances, know that notice that he's, he's teaching us some basic rules that we all are aware of. First of all, that we know not only our own self, but we know the situations in which we find ourselves in. And again, I, I think one of the uh, wonderful things about the situation of beggars is, does anybody else here have like mental or spiritual blinders that you kind of pull down the shades when you find yourself in these tough situations in third world countries? Or am I the only person who kind of like, you know, get off the plane and kind of like, ah, you know, <laughs> kind of like that? I mean, that's what he's talking about. I mean, if, if I mean, our, it doesn't have to be third world country. I remember, you know, south side of Chicago when I was a, a student there years ago. Um, but... So we, we actually, why am I asking you about these blinders? Because I think we all know that we do have this relationship with people that we encounter in life. And that when we shut ourselves off very consciously that way, we're extremely conscious of shutting ourselves off and of what is lost in terms of relationship. Because joy is in relationship. And it's not really out of fear. It's out of that tremendous conundrum of that, what do we do in this situation? Where does that guidance come from? So we have that awareness. We are aware of those mo'atan, and yet we're not really willing to trust them. So how do we learn about it? Well, for each of these examples so forth, I'm sure that you could provide examples where it worked and where it didn't work. So notice that Ibn Arabi, when he talks about defining a divine name, He's not talking about somebody sitting off in some retreat inside of all of this sort of flooding in all at once. I mean, it's, he's talking about, say, a divine name, Al-Manan, or, or Al-Mu'ti, the person who gives, or the person who bestows by grace. Well, how do we find that name? When we find the occasion for giving, for, for that grace, for that, that, that is our finding. That is our discovering that divine name. So even if you go back to these abstract forms of self-knowing and awareness at the beginning of the chapter, 
here's where he's concretely explaining how we do learn and encounter those divine names. And you'll notice that our experience of both sides, of the consequences of getting it right or getting it wrong, is absolutely key to our building up compassion. Uh, now that our, our awareness of compassion, if we could dig deeper into where, why people, even as children, have such incredible differences of compassion, it might take the whole karmic process uh, very deep indeed, and he has plenty of illusions to that. But just sticking to our own individual awareness and our own perception of the degrees of awareness that people around us have in these regards, notice how we're learning, how he's, how he's reminding us of where we discover that divine presence and how that knowledge of the self comes to us from precisely our action and living in the world. Five, among the sicknesses of the soul expressed in words is also whenever a parent does something good for one or some of their children, some of them, because of some specific purpose in their soul. It's a phrase that's applied, this specific purpose in their soul is applied to Jacob when he tells all of his sons to go into the Egypt by different gates. Uh, it doesn't really explain what that is. But he doesn't, when he does, that person, parent doesn't do that same thing for all of the children. Then someone else says to that parent, in the presence of one of the children who didn't receive that gift, why didn't you do that with all the other kids? Uh, such busybodiness, uh, Ibn Arabi continues, is a terrible misdeed, leading to enmity between children and their parents. Indeed, and this is a quote, it is a satanic word, kalun shaitaniya, without any remedy once it has been uttered. But its remedy, before it's uttered, is to reflect upon the messenger saying, again, whoever wants to improve or beautify the religious practice, the 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 state of another person leaves him alone as far as everything that does not concern him personally. Okay, um, sixth, um, I didn't have a good example for that. Um, it wasn't too, it wasn't uh, so personal. I'll have to avoid it today. But among the illnesses of the soul reflected in words is whenever a human being says, "I'm saying the truth," and I don't give a damn whether or not the pains that the person who hears about it feels. You know, so I mean, it's really there because just like that. You know, that bullheaded, I'm telling you what's true, and I don't give a damn, you know, what, what the effect is. Whoever does that sort of thing, Ibn Arabi continues, has forgotten God's saying, 4.114, there is no good in most of their talking together, najwahum, except for whoever counsels charity, sadaqah, and what is right, and ma'ruf, and making peace among the people, and who does that while seeking what satisfies and pleases God, radatullah. For saying what is truly right, al-ma'ruf, means saying what God has specified for that person in his proper time and place, in its mountain again, while hoping for the good result to occur in respect to the person hearing that. Again, his formula. For saying what is truly right, al-ma'ruf, and al-ma'ruf is this phrase that's used throughout the Quran and all, always abuse both the Munkar and ma'ruf, means saying what God has specified, ayyana, for that person in its proper time and place, while hoping for the good result to occur in respect to the person hearing that. So notice that when we talk with other people about what to do in a situation, notice the conditions here. We have to, first of all, do above all in the end, and that's the most important thing, we're doing it for the sake of God's satisfaction, to satisfy and please God. That's one quality. And then that it has to be about charity and what is right and leads to making peace among people. So those are a heavy set of conditions, and uh, Ibn Arabi is certainly aware that he's doing so. And he says, and it's for this last and most essential element of spiritual intention, of seeking what truly satisfies and pleases God, that is only for whoever knows what pleases God. And he only knows what pleases God through knowing, through this marifa 
of what God has prescribed in his book and by the tongue of his messenger. So he ponders whatever he would like to say in that particular circumstance, considering whether it is truly pleasing to God in every possible respect. And if we find even a single respect that is even the slightest bit dubious, then the whole thing is unacceptable and not pleasing to God. This is indeed a very difficult matter, Amran Asad, As, um, Asab, and its remedy is knowing what truly pleases God. Uh, again, <clears throat> a lot of times you'll read uh, reductive things or phrases in Ibn Arabi, and he always comes back to this famous Kilatul Ma'am, sleeping less, Kilatul Kalam, and so forth, or in the, in the book of what the spiritual seeker needs, he talks about sumpt and silence. But notice the immense density. I mean, how many of us, when he's talking about uh, you know, following what the messenger says, notice the distance between what he's explaining here and somebody who just clams up? I mean, this, this same distance is absolutely true of every single other point of revelation that he, miss, that he mentions. And it's what makes this book so delightful to read is, and, and is that you know, he's reminding us of what do the words actually mean? Well, they don't mean not speaking. That would be nice. We could all get to heaven that way. I mean, we could all, if the Nawafil just meant doing the 26 extra sunnah prayers every day, then all these guys uh, up in the border training for jihad in, in, in uh, Pakistan would be God's closest friends, you know. Um, no, <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> and, and so Nawafil, you know, is what comes after doing what's our duty. Well, he's talking here about what's our duty. Imagine what comes after and beyond that. It isn't as simple as just doing that many prayers or shutting up or whatever. So I have to underline that when he talks about here about, and whenever Ibn Arabi talks about doing what God has specified or what the messenger brought, he's, he's explaining to us how deeply that, that commandment goes. Seven, among the soul sicknesses in speech is also being zealous and pointing out something reprehensible or munkar, the opposite of maruf, in a specific person among those in power or others. A fisultan. <laughs> I... Uh, can't help. I, everybody does that here in Berkeley. <laughs> Just walk down and read the T-shirts as you go down the street here. <laughs> Without being more general and universal in that judgment. So it's, there's nothing he's saying wrong with pointing that out. But you have to be universal in that judgment so that you're not just picking on the publicly visible person who has a lot of power or who's quite visible, you know, not the people who are in the gossip rags or the people or us or whatever, but that you're applying it in every area of your life. And again, that shuts us up quickly. Uh, the remedy for this is truly knowing the divine measure, ma'rifat al-mizan. Again, al-mizan is a Quranic phrase. What's harmonious? What's the divine measure? What, what God actually would prescribe as, as a harmonious thing in that matter? And being, and being innocent in your own soul of anything, everything reprehensible that you know the divine rep prescriptions find reprehensible according to your own way of interpreting and understanding them. Now, that's a long phrase. It's a mouthful, but every bit of it is important. So the remedy for that positively is to be aware of what God's measure is in that situation and apply it universally. So that's the positive side. But in order to do so, he says, you have to be innocent in your own soul of that thing that you find reprehensible in someone else. I mean, completely innocent. You're not innocent if you want to, want to do it, but you're afraid you'll get caught. That, that isn't what he means by baria. It means it's like it's not there. You know, that thing is not there. Or you wouldn't do it because your party, you know, wouldn't do it or whatever. Um, so that you know, and then he, he, this is the subtle part, and it's so important in how we understand and apply Ibn Arabi. According to your own way of interpreting, your own madhab, that is, to your sort of school of interpretation, and your own ijtihad. 
So you've got all these elements that you don't have that within yourself, and you don't, and you're only finding that fault in people who actually follow your own culture, your own method, and your own way of thinking, your own itch to head, while not demanding that of someone else who follows their own way of interpreting and understanding them, their own madhab and ijtihad. Do you, do you understand what this is all saying? I mean, this comes down to get to work, you know, but forget about other people. You know, you've got so far to go in this. And notice that when we talk about the word tolerance, the, part of the reason people pay no attention to it is so weak. You notice what he's talking about here is an infinite tolerance of others because there's so much work that we have to accomplish and take care of on ourselves. But not demanding that of something else who follows their own way of interpreting and understand that, which considers, might consider that action to be permissible, mubah. So you, you can only apply that judgment to people who actually agree with that particular notion of what is forbidden or whatever is proper, uh, and you can't apply to them your own notion of what might be reprehensible because that's dependent on your own interpretation, your own culture, and so forth. And he gives the example. It's a wonderful example because he discusses it at length in the chapters on purification and prayer. So he says the Hanafi school allows drinking date wine and even doing your ablutions in date wine. Now, I, I don't stepping on the toes of any Hanafis here, and I bet they've all straightened out since they've been army in our own time. But if you've ever been to Turkey or Asia, you know there's a lot of uh, a lot of tippling going on there that, uh, that may have to do with the Hanafi school. So um, that uh, so you should only criticize someone who themselves admits what they're that they're doing something wrong, or about which everyone, and he means everyone, is in agreement, and that is the divine measure, al Misan al Ilahi. Now the details of these words betraying spiritual illness and ignorance are many, but their illnesses and remedies can be summed up in two basic principles. First, that you speak up when you strongly desire to remain silent, and secondly that you remain silent whenever you strongly desire to speak up. Do I need to repeat that? <laughs> so <laughs> Um, well, the word ishtaha, strongly desire, is come shahwa, so it refers to the inclinations of tabia, the natural animal being. The other principle is that you only speak up where you're keeping silent would mean willfully disobeying God, being asi yourself, and otherwise that you not speak at all. So the other principle is that you only speak up where you're keeping silent would mean willfully disobeying God, and otherwise that you not speak at all. But, I mean, we don't have to go far through history to see that that kind of speaking up is the kind that's the rarest of all. Okay. Now, as for illnesses reflected in deeds, and I'm coming up on my one hour, but I'll just be a few more minutes here. I don't want to deprive you at least of this end of this chapter. The first is that whenever you find out that you're carrying out an act of worship or service, ibadah, such as salat, in public, is better or more beautiful, better better done, asan, than your performance of it in private or inwardly. For this is among the most difficult and troubling of the diseases of the soul, and its remedy is a painful torment, alam. Uh, it's like the punishments of hell. So, um, and then he repeats many injunctions in the Quran Hadith to consider God as present and watching us at all time. So that will bring out our sense of haya again, that sense of our conscience or shame. And there is another remedy for this, but it is even more difficult, terribly difficult to carry out. And that is to have the intention, yanwi, to improve the inner state of devo- one's own inner state of devotion by instructing the spiritually ignorant and reminding the spiritually heedless. Uh, again, an interesting cure. 
Um, now, as for the final things, as for the illnesses of states, he mentions two that sum up the rest of this category. That includes keeping company with the righteous, a salihuin, so that it becomes known among the people that that person is one of them, while he is actually with his own carnal desires, shahwa. And he, he gives these examples of Sufis being in ecstasy, but they're really in ecstasy about the woman singer or the pretty guy across the room or whatever, uh, not with God. And there's a huge Sufi literature warning people about this, so it's not something modern. I mean, some people laugh because we've all been there if you've ever been involved in a, a spiritual group. But uh, this old wajd of true ecstasy and tawajud of, of pretending to be so, not even pretending to be so, but being so for not for God, but for the, the, the carnal beauty that we're witnessing. And among the illnesses of the soul states is pretending to, or literally dressing up as, something other than what is actually in one's soul. And its remedy is to dress up in precisely whatever is occupying your own soul at that moment. So whoever knows these illnesses and remedies and applies them to his own soul will benefit from. And now he gives a story which, in some ways, it might apply to this last story about wajd and tawajud and ecstasy and the, and Sufi gatherings and so forth. By the way, talk about Ibn Arabi's own applying his own lessons. We know from his writings that he thought sama, music and, and you know, dancing and all this, was something really dangerous. He has lots of writings in which he says so. And yet, as you read through the Futuhat, you'll find it's clear that he hung out and participated in this stuff all the time, you know. So, you know, he, he, he felt that he was up to it, but not, you know, not the neophytes, you know. But uh, so, uh, so it is interesting because it's, I mean, I mentioned this because you'll find modern day sort of fundamentalist types, you know, tra- picking and choosing what they read and how they translate from Ibn Arabi to, to make sort of to correspond to their own nafs. But, you know, he, again, there's this immense tolerance of other people, but that incredibly deep requirement of, the person who takes their spiritual life seriously. And all of this is in his story. Now, a story is told about Sheikh Ruzbahan, this Ruzbahan Bakli Shirazi. Some of you may have met, read Carl Ernst's book about it, or Corban edited his two most important books, the Abhar al-Ashikin and the Shahat in Persian. But this is a famous Sheikh Ruzbahan of Shiraz, that he became afflicted with passionate love, ishq, for a singing girl, and was ecstatically love-struck with longing for her. Now, the tales aren't here, but I think he was 60 or 70 years old when this happened, so it wasn't, you know, it was a scandal. I mean, it was, you know, not, not, a, not a natural inclination. There was something about this girl. Now, he had earlier been so given to shouting and crying out in his ecstasies for God that he would disturb those circumambulating the Kaaba when he was near to it. And he was even given to circumambulating sort of on the roofs or terraces overlooking the sacred precinct, for he was most truthful in his in his. And I don't know what the haram looked like at the time. I mean, whether he was actually in a, a, a flying around over there or whether it meant that he, there was a terrace that he could uh, walk around. But in any case, you know, the idea was that he's, he, he was given ecstasy and ecstatic states. So when he was struck for, with love for the singing girl, no one at first realized that, since the effects of the way he had been with regard to his love for God were transferred to her. And he knew that the common people were imagining that his ecstatic behavior was still arising from his relationship to God. So he came to the Sufis, and here's where the lesson sits, and tore off his Sufi cloak, his hirka, and threw it at them and told them the whole real story. And he said, I don't want to lie about my state. Then he kept on serving and accompanying that singing girl, the terms of the accompanying are like what you do with a sheikh, and told that woman about his state and his ecstatic love for her, even though he was one of the great ones among the people of God, a kabir Allah. So that woman became ashamed and turned back to God, to, to Tawbah, because of his behavior and through the blessings of his inner sincerity, he said, so that she turned to continually accompanying and serving him. 
And God took away from his heart that excessive attachment to her so that he returned to the Sufis and again wore their cloak, considering that he had never lied to God about his state. And that is how it is with the most truthful and sincere of them. And that sums it all up. So, And this is the end of this section. So let us not be careful not to lie about our inner states, actions, and words, always keeping the inner truthfulness and sincerity, which we were talking about yesterday afternoon, and only appearing to the people the same way we appear to God, as is appropriate and incumbent on us in each spiritual time and place, in each mountain. For the knowing of God's moment-to-moment judgment in every detailed instant of these matters is an essential, indispensable condition for the people of God. For no one can truly worship and serve God who does not know his judgment, his, his, his intention at each instant. And surely God does not take the spiritually ignorant person as his close friend. Thank you. Thank you.